I do think it would be very valuable to go verse by verse through some of the passages that are used by people to argue for celibacy over marriage or to argue for their belief that individuals who are married will eventually have to live their lives as if they are unmarried in order to overcome, sometimes blended in with the concept of the overcoming life, that you either cannot marry to go on to perfection, or that if you do marry, you're eventually going to have to become celibate and live as if you're not married. As I just said, the best thing we could do is actually look at the scriptures that people think are inferring those things and find out if that's actually what they're saying. Considering that the principal argument for celibacy rather than marriage, or at least the incorrect claim that celibacy is morally superior to marriage, is based, in my opinion, entirely wrongly on Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 7 and look at that and maybe some other passages comprehensively and contextually and examine what's actually being said in those passages. Starting with 1 Corinthians 7, 1-2, Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. This passage and the statements that follow it strongly demonstrate the necessity of proper linguistic and contextual study. And when we don't use proper methods of linguistic and contextual study, meaning looking at the original languages and looking at the whole passage in its context in the scripture and sometimes in its cultural context and historical context as well, serious errors can be made in our interpretations. Some people think that it is Paul who is saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And maybe if you just cherry pick this out, you might argue that point. But when the language and the context is properly examined, it appears that Paul is actually quoting what the Corinthians had said or had written to him. And then he's responding to their statement, which entirely changes the end point that he's making. Because we'd have to determine, does Paul agree with what some say? If some are saying this, does Paul agree with it? Do the verses that follow this show that he's agreeing that it's better for a man and a woman not to be in a relationship or not? The Greek phrase peri de, is translated now concerning, is a phrase that's used to begin a response to questions or comments that have been given to the speaker. When you use this kind of phrase in Greek, it normally is used by someone who's responding to a point that was asked about or brought up, not introducing a new point of their own. Paul uses this phrase throughout his epistle to refer to something the Corinthians themselves had apparently asked him about. Just look at 1 Corinthians 7.25, 8.1, 12.1, and 16.12 as well. In other words, the Corinthians are the ones who wrote this statement to Paul, and he's responding to their statement. That means that the statement, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, wasn't Paul's statement. It's a statement the Corinthians made or wrote to him, which might have been meant as, isn't it better for a man not to touch a woman? Whether the Corinthians asked this as a question or said it as a declaration doesn't make it true, though. And Paul's statements that follow it might infer he didn't agree with that statement, if that's what they meant by it. Paul's responses might be a plea for moderation in terms of the two extremes that were prevalent in the pagan culture of that day in Corinth. One was the practice of extreme asceticism, where all pleasure of any kind, whether it's proper or otherwise, was to be avoided. The other was the libertine practice of indulging in any and all pleasure that a person might desire, no matter how foul it might be. It could be Paul was preaching against those extremes, and it could be that Paul was actually saying that neither marriage nor celibacy are mandatory for the Christian. There's many Greek scholars who believe that's exactly what Paul was saying in this passage. We could talk about that verse in more detail, but let's move on a few verses to the sixth verse where Paul makes another important statement. He says, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. There's really only three options for what he might have meant by that. 
First, marriage and the marital relations that are part and parcel of marriage are not commanded as a requirement for Christians. Or celibacy and abstinence from marital relations are not commanded as a requirement for Christians. That's what he had been discussing. It had to be one of those two things, or the third option, it very well might be both. And I think that may be likely. This type of language, when Paul says, I speak, is intended to convey the point that he's speaking his own feelings about an issue and not what God has commanded in the scripture. So even if this was meant to say that celibacy is preferred, which I don't believe is what it's saying, Paul was only saying that it was his preference and making it very clear that that preference is not biblically based or a command of God. If so, that would mean it certainly could not be used as a biblical measure of morality required for perfection. But I don't personally believe that's even the point. I think it's far more likely that Paul's referring to one or more of the three options I just gave you, that neither marriage nor celibacy are a requirement of the Christian faith, and that any preference of one over the other is not biblically mandated. So Paul was essentially saying to the church at Corinth, which was a city drowning in immorality, by the way, that marriage is a protection, at least it should be, against the temptations surrounding them. But if they're willing and able to be celibate in this environment, that is wonderful too. If that is their gift and calling, as we're going to see. Notice what he actually says about celibacy or marriage in verse 7. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. The first part of this statement is quoted by some people as if it overwrites the second part, which it doesn't. Paul's gift in this regard was his capacity for celibacy, but he clearly states that every man has his own proper gift of God, and that one may be to be married or one may be to remain unmarried. If these are proper gifts and they're of God, it can only be concluded that it's God's purpose for some to marry and some not to marry, and that both are proper depending on the individual and the gift he or she has been given by God. Then we come to what appears to be a very strange statement, if not properly understood at least, considering that Paul himself gave exactly the opposite advice elsewhere. In the 8th to the ninth verse, he says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. It's important to note that he made a statement that sounds like it's saying exactly the opposite thing to Timothy, and by extension to the church of Ephesus that Timothy was working with at that time, which was dealing with very different circumstances, when he said in 1 Timothy 5.14, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Notice that Paul doesn't tell Timothy to tell the Ephesian young women, it's okay if you marry. He stated that it was his will that they did marry. Not that it's against his will, but you're going to have to since you can't resist temptation. It's obvious this was to protect them from immorality, but the Greek language he used in this statement expresses this in a very different kind of way than the language he used in his statement to the Corinthians. I think there's a simple reason. The reason Paul wished that all the Corinthians were like him and that widows not remarry, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7-7 and 7-39-40, was because of the present distress that he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7-26. The fact that this was a present distress, which isn't a permanent distress, by the way, should not be overlooked when we're trying to, I believe, incorrectly claim that celibacy is the moral ideal. Paul is obviously referring to temporal present circumstances that the Corinthians were going through that instigated his belief that celibacy would be preferable, if possible, in their present situation. Some historians believe that was due to the fact that Corinth and the surrounding area was undergoing severe famine conditions during the time this epistle was written. 
There's a variety of other possibilities as well, none of which would infer that this preference of Paul, again, it wasn't God's command, but Paul's preference regarding present celibacy was a moral issue, which it clearly was not, or even a long-time requirement of the general church, which it clearly was not. Even if this might be taken as something other than a physical condition of distress like famine that was going on, there's still not a basis for making this anything more than temporary celibacy for a temporal present condition of some kind. And all by itself, that disproves the argument this was intended as a moral rule for all who intended to go on to perfection. Though I'm not necessarily taking this position, many historians do believe the present distress was possibly referring to famine conditions that were occurring during that time. If that were the case, it may even clarify the supposedly mysterious statement that he makes regarding those being married and having children having trouble in the flesh. That could, if this was due to the physical conditions going on around them in the present, be referring to the trouble of suffering due to food shortage and the necessary sharing of the small amount of food that might be available with a family, which wouldn't be as difficult if you were one single person. Let me make just a simple summary of some of these points that I think are very simple, but very strong statements against the idea that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 that celibacy is the moral standard necessary to achieve full perfection. Based on the Greek grammar and use of this kind of expression, the statement that it's good for a man not to touch a woman probably wasn't even Paul's own statement, but his repetition of the comment the Corinthians had made to him, and then his response to it. Two, Paul points out that every man has a proper gift of God, and that one person's gift may be to be married, and another person's gift may be to remain unmarried. If they're both proper gifts and they're both of God, it can only be concluded it's God's purpose for some to marry and some not to marry, and that both are proper, depending on which gift a person has been given by God. And then third, Paul clearly states as a requirement of celibacy, or of marriage for that matter, was not a commandment of God, but a statement regarding Paul's preference regarding the present condition they were facing. Those are just beginning points for discussing this passage, but I believe they alone demonstrate that the actual context of Paul's statements were certainly not, say that celibacy was a requirement, and certainly not intended to convey the idea that you eventually would have to become celibate to attain full salvation. Going on a little further in 1 Corinthians 7, there's a number of other points that I think are important to properly understand later in that chapter. One example is in the passage in the 17th to the 24th verse that's right in the midst of Paul's statements talking about marriage and celibacy. There he says, But as God hath distributed every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men, brethren. Let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. I think these statements can very easily be missed by getting caught up in some of the statements regarding celibacy in this chapter and reading right through this without realizing just how significant some of these points are. They can also be misunderstood if they're not taken in the context of the overall subject of the chapter. 
If these statements are being made as an extension of the ongoing subject of the chapter, that would mean they are applicable to the issue of marriage versus celibacy. And if that's so, this series of statements forcibly disproves the idea that the celibate life is the moral ideal and the only true calling of God that will result in overcoming. The phrase, God hath distributed to every man, seems to be a parallel with the earlier statement, every man hath his proper gift of God one after this man, another after that, which is unquestionably a reference to the two different gifts of God that are marriage and celibacy. The phrase, let every man abide in the same calling in which he was called, reinforces that as well. The references to circumcision versus uncircumcision, to being a servant versus being a free man, are just examples of this overall point, that if you're called to a certain calling, you should remain in that calling. If these statements apply to being married versus being celibate, which I think they have to in this context, it cannot mean that if you're celibate presently due to not having been married, then you must or even should remain so and can never marry. That would contradict the entire meaning of the passage, and it would contradict common sense as well, as you'll see. What this passage does appear to be saying, if you rightly read it in its context and rightly divide it in terms of how these issues are dealt with elsewhere, is that whatever you're called to be, you need to strive to be. How does that apply to marriage or celibacy, which is the overall context of the chapter? If you're called to be celibate, you should remain celibate. If you're called to be married, you should marry or remain married. And especially if you're presently married, you should not attempt to be celibate. You realize that is what this is saying. That, unfortunately, is exactly the opposite of how some people have taught this chapter. But if you take it in the context of the whole message and you take the whole chapter, Paul's statements do not appear to be a call for married people to become celibate at some point in their relations with one another in order to be more morally pure. Quite the opposite. As it is clearly implying, if you're called to marry or to be in a married relationship, you need to abide to stay in that calling and not to try to live in a celibate type of relationship within a marriage, which again contradicts the whole definition of what a marriage is. If someone is called to be a married person, they should never marry and then later practice celibacy in their marriage, other than, as I said, in cases where there is some temporary purpose or health reason or something of that kind. That is not the proper purpose of marriage, nor is it the proper responsibility to your spouse, as you saw in Paul's earlier statements in 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5. Simply put, if you're called to be celibate, and that ought to be a very clear calling that you are very certain of, you should abide in that calling. You should remain celibate. But if you're called to be married, you should abide in that calling. You should remain married, which by definition and by the contrast here with celibacy clearly includes normal marital relations other than for temporal purposes of abstinence or perhaps due to some present distress, if the present distress merited that abstinence. Another confusing and potentially misunderstood series of statements is found in the 32nd to 35th verse where Paul says, but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Some have taken this as saying that it's better to be unmarried and thus undistracted by natural responsibilities that are related to being married or perhaps having children, and that if you're unmarried and thus undistracted, according to them, that you can give your full attention to the Lord. Though that could possibly be what Paul means here, it is not the only possible meaning of these statements. 
I doubt anyone would argue that being unmarried might allow a person to give more time and attention to the Lord, but there are plenty of people who are unmarried who fill their time with many other things besides the Lord. And more importantly, there is no biblical basis for arguing that someone who's married is unable to give the Lord enough time and attention to carry out his complete will in their life. Being unmarried might allow you to do more for the Lord in terms of activity, but there's no biblical basis for saying that being unmarried or living as if you're unmarried is the only path to full spiritual development. In addition, the fact that someone is unmarried is not an automatic guarantee they'll be able to serve the Lord with less of the cares and distractions of the world. You can be unmarried and surrounded by a large network of friends and activities that can keep you just as busy or even more busy than a married person. The Greek language and grammar of this passage, though, does present an additional possibility regarding what Paul might be saying here. These statements might be taken as an exhortation not to be anxious or always worrying whether you're married or unmarried. Paul starts these statements by saying that he wants all to be without carefulness. That phrase is the Greek word amarimnos, which means to be free from anxiety, free from worry or free from concern. Paul is saying that he wants all of the Corinthians, whether they're married or unmarried, to be free of the anxiety and worry that will distract them from their relationship with the Lord. In the very same passage where Paul says that the unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord and that the married careth for the things that are of the world and how he may please his wife, both words translated careth are the Greek word merimneo, which is the verb form of the word amerimnos I just referred to. Marimneo doesn't normally mean care in the sense of taking care of something or having feelings for it. It refers to anxiety or worry. So this is likely not talking about you having more affection or desire. It's talking about you having more anxiety or worry or concern over things. The point being that some who read this think that this is saying that the unmarried have more affection to give to God than the married do. But that may not be what this is saying at all. What Paul may actually be saying here, when the words he's using are properly defined at least, is that it's his desire that all of the church, whether they're married or unmarried, will be free from anxiety and worry. I do not believe Paul is saying that married people desire the things of the world and unmarried people desire the things of God. I think he's saying that all of the church has worries and anxieties. And reading between the lines and properly defining the words in grammar here seems to imply the unmarried have anxiety about serving God and the married have anxiety about serving God and about caring for their wives and potential families. But that doesn't necessarily mean also having the anxiety over the needs of your family means you're not having anxiety over the things of God. It just means that you have anxiety about both. So if the word care there is referring to anxiety or worry, the unmarried worry about their relationship with God and the married worry about their relationship with their family, but not in contradistinction to one another, but in the fact that the married also worry about their relationship with their families, not just their relationship with God. Even if you want to use the word care, it's not a sin to care for your family and to care for God. It appears that it's the anxiety that Paul is talking about that's the problem and not whether someone's married or unmarried. A married person might have more anxiety to deal with, but it's the anxiety that all have to deal with. It's the core issue. And that seems to be supported by the statement that he hopes that all, which would include the married and unmarried, may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Which, by the way, would tell you that just because you're unmarried doesn't mean you won't have distractions because he's hoping that for all, both married and unmarried. Paul doesn't want any of the church members, whether they're married or unmarried, to be distracted by their anxieties and worries. It's not being married or unmarried that's the issue. It's the anxieties that each experience. Let me come back to this seeming contradiction between some of Paul's statements here in 1 Corinthians 7 and his statements in 1 Timothy 5, 11 to 15, where he advises that young widows should marry. 
The simplest reason that the young widow should marry is that remaining unmarried could cause them to be distracted by a desire for a relationship. They cause them to become idle, cause them to get caught up in gossip and other things. Understand that is very significant because the first of those issues, a desire for a relationship, demonstrates that someone who's not married, someone who's presently celibate, what Paul referred to as virgins in that passage, can be just as distracted or even more from the right things and turn from God as someone could be distracted by the responsibilities of being in a married life. And that seems to prove that being single is not the spiritual cure for attaining moral perfection, as there is just as much or more potential for the wrong kinds of distractions from God's service in the single life as there is in the married life. Now, it is true that a married person, especially if they're also a parent, has more anxieties regardless of their natural responsibilities than the average single person does. But I can say from well over 20 years of experience that I have never been less anxious about pleasing God because I'm married and because I have children. I have not lost or replaced my anxiety about pleasing God with an anxiety about pleasing my wife and children. I do have great anxiety about pleasing my wife and children, but it doesn't override or lessen my anxiety about pleasing God. In fact, almost the opposite is the case. Though I'm anxious about the needs of my wife and children, I am just as much or more anxious as a husband and a father about pleasing God. The awareness of my responsibility for the spiritual environment of my home and the spiritual protection development of my family and all the resulting anxiety that that can cause hasn't distracted me from God. It's compelled me to draw closer to Him. The beautiful burden of caring for and having anxiety over my wife and children has caused me to long for a deeper intimacy and a more faithful relationship with the Lord, not less. The anxiety of my responsibility for them has caused me to seek the only one who alone is able to divinely provide and protect for my family, the one who's able to make me what I ought to be, which is my goal of being a godly and good father, husband, and pastor. I'm not less concerned with God's business because of the business of having a family. I'm more concerned than I might be if I didn't have a family. And I'm more anxious about displeasing God than I was before I was married or had children. I am responsible not just to them, but to Him for how I treat them. That is at the heart of every man abiding in his calling. Part of my calling is to be a husband and a father. And being a husband and a father actually impels me to draw closer to God and to be more like His Son, Jesus. As a sidestep from that, it might be worth considering the similarities in the role of a pastor to that of a father. If the argument's made that being a husband and father is going to cause you to have concern over your family over and against your own full spiritual development, which I believe is exceptionally untrue, what does that say about the role of a pastor? A pastor carries the fatherly burden of a whole assembly or multiple assemblies that are made up of a number of families. If having children is such a distraction from giving yourself fully to God that it will prevent you from personally and individually going on to perfection, wouldn't being a pastor limit your personal and individual spiritual growth in the very same way? Of course not. And I believe that proves the point I've been attempting to make throughout. The responsibilities we have to others besides ourselves, whether a wife, children, or extended family, or as a pastor, the families who constitute a church, are often part and parcel of what makes up the pressures and the self-sacrificial actions that are not only beneficial to our family or our church, but which are producing something in us individually as well. And that will, if it's brought to full fruition, produce the very perfection we're seeking. On one more note that I don't feel we've sufficiently answered in this discussion, if the marital relationship is morally unclean and thus sinful, as some apparently seem to believe, And if that relationship was part of God's original intent for mankind and for the production of children, 
there's no choice but to conclude that it was God's will and design for mankind to sin. And not just that he would allow mankind to sin, but that he himself commanded them to sin. Because three of the five commands that God gave to man in Genesis 1.28 are related to procreation and the production of children, and they were given prior to the fall when man was still in a state of at least relative perfection, what we might call innocence, sinlessness. It is a fact that moral uncleanness equals sin. And thus, if marriage and marital relations are morally unclean, then marriage and marital relations are sinful. That leads to only one of two conclusions, and I'll let you determine which you believe is more biblical. First, if marital relations are morally unclean, then they are sin and must be overcome in order to go on to moral perfection, which is what some believe. But if marital relations are sin, then as I just said, God commanded mankind to sin when he commanded them to procreate in order to populate the earth, and he did so even before the fall occurred and man had ever done anything that was sinful. If marital relations are sin, the only conclusion is that God created a sinful process that was part of his original creation that he called good and very good. But on the other hand, if marital relations are not sin, then they cannot be considered morally unclean, and someone having marital relations within a proper marital relationship would have no bearing on their moral perfection or lack thereof. If marital relations are not sin, then God was not commanding mankind to sin by carrying out the procreation that would populate the earth, and I don't believe he was. If marital relations are not sin, then God's design for that process to be used to procreate and populate the earth was a good and not an evil act, and I believe that it was. There are several things that I pray haven't been lost in the length and the breadth of this discussion that we've had on this subject. First, I absolutely believe in the spiritual value of celibacy and the spiritual value of marriage. True marriage, though, and not just a facade. There are things that can be produced in the life of an individual in each of these types of relationships, and both are proper gifts of God. I also strongly believe that one is not morally superior to the other for the purpose of attaining perfection. Spiritual maturity, the fullness of which is perfection, can be produced in either situation, in the life of a married person living in a normal marital relationship or in the life of a celibate individual, if God intends that state in that individual. If a person feels a call from God to be celibate, they should be. On the other hand, if a person feels a call to the married life, they should not strive to be celibate by not marrying, and they certainly should not strive to be celibate at some point in their marriage. I firmly believe that each of these are gifts, as stated in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, and the gifts of God are good and not evil. If God gives a man a certain spiritual gift, like an office of the ministry, and he doesn't give another man the same spiritual gift, that doesn't mean both men can't go on to perfection. Each gift is given for a different purpose. It isn't a specific office itself or the kinds of activities associated with a specific office that's necessary for all to be perfected. But if you've been called to that office, it is very likely that office and its responsibilities are part of the necessity for you being perfected. I'll close by repeating what Paul said in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen to 20 But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him become circumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. And by the way, when he says that, what he's saying is the keeping of the commandments of God related to those he gives those commandments to. Meaning, if any man is called being married, let him remain married. If any man is called to be celibate, let him remain celibate.
And Paul concludes that by saying, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called.